Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading, 1-800-375-4188. And I'm pleased to welcome back to the program today, James Corbett. And as we know, James is the founder and the editor of the Corbett Report that was founded in 2007. And in 2012, James became the editorial writer for the International Forecaster uh, that was created by economic analyst and our friend Bob Chapman. And please, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you visit James' website at thecorbettreport.com. That is thecorbettreport.com. And if you'd like to have a complimentary issue of the International Forecaster, you can go to their website, theinternationalforecaster.com. And and hello, James. Well, hello. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here again. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. And let's get started right away. And I'm not going to ask you the normal question, but uh, <laughs> I'm actually ready for I'm it saying, in case. But <laughs> oh, are you really? I am. <laughs> well, now I'm going to throw you off. <laughs> Um, there was an article on the website uh, of twominds.com that asked what killed the middle class. And the article points out that wealth concentration, that is income inequality, has returned to levels not seen since the 1920s. Is the middle class dead? Is it dead here in the U.S.? Is it dead around the world? Uh, and is it going to improve? Well, that is a heady opening question, isn't it? How about um, that? Yeah. I'm right to the R- wow, the right matter. into the heart of things. Well, you I, I don't want to uh, to oversimplify things in this answer, um, and I don't want to go in half cocked, not having really researched or thought about this. But just thinking about it broadly, I would say that our conceptions of middle class and upper class and lower class are necessarily are changing. Um, because the fundamental underpinning of the economy itself is changing. And one of the kind of catchphrase slogans that's been being thrown around increasingly to try to encapsulate what's happening in that transition is data is the new oil. Um, I had a podcast episode on that very topic years uh, or so ago, data is the new oil. Um, But it's getting, even that phrase is being used so much that it's now getting a lot of kickback. Um, There was a recent Wired article, for example, no data isn't the new oil. But clearly that's gesturing towards something um, important about the way the the economy as we know it is changing. It's going, it's becoming less dependent on the traditional industrial manufacturing processes um, that have undergirded the economy in the industrial and post-industrial world. But... Uh, It is now moving towards um, data itself, data about you and the way that you do things and what you are doing and when and with whom is becoming a type of currency in the economy, which necessarily changes the way the economy itself is structured. So, of course, one of the ways that this is being felt is in the, um, the destruction of what was a comfortable and secure blue-collar, working-class lifestyle that existed at some point in the post-war period, say, in the United States, um, where there was a path for someone with, say, high school-level education to work a comfortable enough, to work a job, we'll say, a blue-collar job in manufacturing of some sort, and to live a comfortable enough life to support a family and to have children and go on vacation for a couple weeks a year, etc., etc. The American dream, as it were. Well, maybe that's not the ultimate enca- uh, encapsulation of that dream, but it's, I think, part of it. The idea that you could at least support a family and, and make a living. 
uh, that is going away. And everyone, I think, understands that and is feeling that. And that's what a lot of the anxieties around issues like immigration, illegal and legal, um, uh, the HB1, H1B, I'm going to get that wrong off the top of my head, those visas for uh, for immigrants to come in, uh, offshoring of jobs. A lot of these types of tensions are around that fundamental displacement of that from the economy. And that, I, I think, was one of those things that propped up what we thought of in the past as the middle class versus the upper class versus the lower class. You could be blue collar and be in the comfortable lower middle class, we'll say. At any rate, you would have a shot at that. At this point, it's becoming harder and harder to uh, envision that kind of lifestyle. And now we're seeing the fight for 15 and these types of minimum wage movements arising around the fact that, well, low-skilled and low-paid labor now has a little chance of getting anywhere, um, let alone even supporting themselves, uh, let alone a family. So uh, I think we have to, at the very least, we have to fundamentally uh, re-evaluate what middle class means in the current economic climate and whether it's still valuable as a way of of uh, of viewing the the uh, people's position in this economy so that's my first stab <laughs> at an attempt at answering a question like that but as you can see it, it brings in about eight thousand other relations that we have to take into account here uh at any rate i think what we used to think of as the upper middle lower class distinctions is changing and uh not certainly not necessarily for the better for a lot of people who used to fit into that middle class lifestyle who are increasingly being pushed further down that ladder. What are governments going to be doing when you have so many of these jobs being replaced by technology, automation, robots? And it's not that it's going to be, you know, 40 years from today that all this is happening. I mean, we're talking about now. We're talking about people's jobs. I'm reading where these, and I've talked about this earlier on my programs, you have these corporations, they're restructuring they're eliminating positions. It's cheaper. They're spending millions and millions of dollars on severance pays um, to eliminate the human. Um, and I'm assuming that what they're doing is they're re- there's restructuring. They're they're retooling. They're revamping. They're 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 upgrading their technologies. So it's happening now. And these are companies that are making profits. It's not that they're bankrupt or anything. So what, and governments have no idea what they're going to do with people that. Well, they do have some ideas, and in fact, that's what's worrying to me. It's something that I've written about in The Forecaster before, is uh, universal basic income is an idea that's being increasingly kicked around as the solution to this. Well, what are governments going to do as there is increasingly less and less avenues for people um, who are not highly technically skilled to make their way in the economy? Uh, Of course, this gives rise to the learn-to-code meme, which people might have picked up on on the internet. If not, um, basically, in the wake of... Uh, coal miners and others being uh, put out of work. Uh, We've seen a lot of journalists writing these think pieces for the New York Times and other mainstream publications. Well, you know, the coal miners just need to learn to code and and become, you know, software engineers or whatever. Um, Just ridiculous, trite advice from cushy uh, journalists living in a bubble. Um, which, of course, has backfired as people now when uh, journalists are going out of work and are increasingly being displaced out of their jobs um, by the dinosaur media just going extinct. Uh, people are tweeting, learn to code at them. 
and then <laughs> being suspended from Twitter because it's seen as har- harassment. But all of this is to say, uh, I mean, the, 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 there are few options. There are few realistic options for people, especially people who are deep into their career in what used to be a, if not comfortable, at least plausible uh, lifestyle of, uh, in the manufacturing sector who are now out of work and struggling. And that's, as you say, only going to increase because of technological concerns. So what do we do in this situation? Well, one of the only solutions that is being talked about on a global level now and in the highfalutin conferences at Davos and others is universal basic income, which of course, for people who don't know, is the idea that the government provides a stipend to every citizen. And generally, this is what is meant by UBI, hence universal. Every single citizen, regardless of who you are, what you do, what, how much money you're making, gets a certain amount of money from the government each month, each two weeks, each year, however they disperse it, um, just as a sum package, uh, no strings attached, just money deposited into your account for you to use any way you want. And the idea here is that, well, I mean, government can make manna rain down from heaven, so why not rain it down on people rather than into the coffers of big banks when they come out with trillion-dollar bailouts? Well, why not just actually give this uh, into the, spend it into the economy, into people's accounts, where they will then spend it uh, on real products and services, and it will at least have a real effect on the economy. And there are There are a lot of things to be said about this, um, which, again, I have written about before. I did an article called Universal Basic Enslavement, where I think you get my take on this proposed quote-unquote solution, which is essentially uh, no strings attached, always has strings attached. And as you're starting to see creep into the conversation about universal basic income that's being held at these highfalutin conferences and in these academic debates and others, it's increasingly people are saying, well, I mean, there has to be some restrictions and maybe we could tie it to, for example, make sure everyone has their mandatory vaccines or something along those lines. You know, we have to tie some sort of civic duties to these, the universal basic income. So I think uh, ultimately this is just going to be the central planner's um, ultimate dream is to be able to control the economy and people in a way never before really possible in, at least in the United States, um, by literally controlling people's income, uh, how, deciding how much you're going to get because the robots are taking all the jobs. I'm not sure I have an alternative solution to these to these quandaries. I mean, these are assuming things continue as they are going and as we know with technological development it generally develops uh, at an exponential rate so you know five years from now it's going to be crazy ten years from now it's going to be ten times crazier twenty years from now it's going to be a thousand times crazier so are we really ready for this no we're not but I don't think universal basic income is going to be the magic solution to all of this and of course it brings in a lot of questions of its own about inflation and how the economy really works so uh, in short, yes, the government has ideas about what uh, ways they might approach this, but I do not think those are going to be very helpful ideas. Well, I can't even imagine how governments could even attempt it, considering all governments are broke. Well, it depends I mean, who you I ask. Mean, be- uh, yeah, um, <laughs> you see, the point um, of universal basic in- in- income is that it's largely popular with people who are advocating modern monetary theory (MMT), which is the buzzword surrounding a new group of uh, thinkers who are coming along with some old Keynesian verities, but they have a new spin on it. Basically, their point is that 
well, the government can't go broke because they print the money. (laughs) And their point is that it doesn't matter if there were $2 in debt or $2 trillion in debt or $200 trillion in debt, the government can print that into existence. They will never go broke to themselves. And there is a certain logic to what they're saying. Um, I think it does not take into account the deeper complexities of the global economic system and what it's structured on. But there, as, as we've talked about before, there is a, 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 an appreciable extent to which the, the international monetary order is based on faith. P- as long as people buy into the system and believe in the system, it can be propped up by just adding more zeros into people's bank accounts. Um, you know, what does, it, what does it really matter in the end, whether you're holding a dollar bill or a thousand dollar bill? Uh, it, it's just the value that you ascribe to that. And um, I think that's... And as as long as you're getting those zeros, you're going to accept it and believe it. (laughs) Well, exactly, right. As long as the system seems to be ticking along, people are happy enough to go along with it until the point at which it hits crisis. And that's the thing that can't really be predicted. It can be foreseen, but not necessarily... You can't say that the time and date that that's going to happen and how that's going to happen. But it has happened over and over throughout history. In fact, it's only a question of when. There's never been a fiat monetary system that's lasted forever. Um, every single one collapses in a hyperinflationary event eventually. A- except, people would say, well, not not the current incarnation of the U.S. dollar, the Federal Reserve note, etc. Well, I would just say, well, just let's sit back and watch for another decade or two or however long it takes. I mean, again, I think that they're trying to point to some false logic to say why this doesn't apply. But anyway, this is a... Uh, dressing itself up as a new economic school. And these MMTers and MMT proponents are the ones who I think are are pushing for this idea of universal basic income. There's a lot of people who believe we're at crisis level now. And predictions believe that, you know, things are going to, uh, I mean, you hear everything from resets to uh, Lord knows what. Are we that close? Or is this... You know, again, it's as long as that faith is there, they can take yeah. it for as long as they want. Well, I, I've been or doing can. this. I've been doing this long enough to know to avoid that question of how close we are. I know, <laughs> because I know uh, time will always make you uh, into a fool at some point. Um, because oh, come I, on, I was trying to get you. To- <laughs> <laughs> well, let me share this story instead. Uh, that was one of the uh, because, as you say, uh, uh, Bob Chapman. Um, I uh, still am very honored that he chose me to to succeed him as uh, lead. Uh, editorial writer for the International Forecaster back in 2012. But before that point, we were having regular weekly conversations on my podcast. And it, that was, of course, during the time of the, the Lehman collapse and, and the crisis and and the, so the so-called recovery, uh, the jobless recovery and all of that. And at that time, I was always pressing Bob, <laughs> you know, how long can they keep this going? And can, you know, when is it going to happen? When's the crash coming? And his point at the time was, you know, I've, I've been around, I've seen this for decades and decades. They can keep it going for a long time. They have a lot of tricks left up their sleeve. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I was younger and greener <laughs> at the time. So I was uh, perhaps more impatient and thinking it was all going to happen in a matter of months or years at most. Well, clearly it didn't. And uh, that was a piece of wisdom from Bob, which I uh, I now appreciate that there there are a lot of tricks up the sleeve and it is so much based on faith. And as long as the public is tricked enough into going along with the system and the status quo and trusting it, then it will continue to function in some form or other. So Again, when and how does does a public en masse lose trust in in institutions and processes that that have been there for their entire life or longer? Uh, it's not predictable, 
And so I can't predict that. And it's so much is dependent on particular circumstances and crises that come up out of nowhere. And then suddenly people realize that the emperor is wearing no clothes. So again, it's, it's about the realization and exactly how and when that will happen. No one really knows, but uh, it, I, I do think it will happen. You know, it is. It, it truly is amazing, all the predictions out there, and I agree with you. They have incredible power and abilities to keep this thing going, And but that doesn't mean people aren't hurt still along mm. the way. Mm. We see the adjustments, you know, to jobs, to wages, to their pensions, and everything is up for grabs, and, you know, they, they get caught up that everything is going to be okay, and that's when really things happen. With all the news, with everything that's going on, you would have thought it would have broken that faith to some degree, and it truly is amazing that it hasn't. But yeah, before we before we go into a break here, um, I don't know if we have time to start it. But uh, in a recent article in the uh, in your newsletter, you you write about the International Criminal Court, and that you suggest is the the real story. Um, behind it, you start your essay with these thoughts. Throughout human history, victorious nations have gone too far in exacting revenge from their defeated foes. So I don't know if we should start stop there. <laughs> I know the music is just about to start. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm talking real slow. But uh, to quote the late Muhammad Ali, those are fighting words. Mister, tell us what you mean. And that is by just, but just as history is written by the winners, so too is justice decided by the victors. And the case of the International Criminal Court is the prime example of that. And so we're going to go into a break with that statement and hear your response when we come back right after these few short messages. Back, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Financial Survival brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading. Heading into the break, we were talking about the International Criminal Court, and James, uh, um, in the last uh, Corbett Report newsletter, you write about the International Criminal Court, and you're going to tell us all about it when we came back. <laughs> and let's go. <laughs> all right. Well, okay, so for those who don't know, of course, the International Criminal Court is a uh, an international court, as, it, as the name implies, that was uh, set up in, uh, in The Hague. Uh, and I believe it started operations in 2003, um, was formally uh, instituted in 2003, and since that time has investigated a number of situations for uh, referral for international potential violations of international crime. So they have a list of situations on their homepage that you can go and read through that they've actually investigated. For, uh, for example... Um, uh, war, uh, alleged war crimes in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 2004, or uh, in northern Uganda in January of 2004, or again in Uganda in, I'm sorry, in the Central African Republic in 2007, uh, Sudan in 2005, uh, Kenya in 2010, Libya 2011, Cote d'Ivoire in 2003, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A number of different situations have been investigated, but you will notice from that list alone that the ones that I've read so far, every single one of them being in Africa. Interesting. In fact, every single investigation that this, uh, that they've ever uh, conducted has been w with regards to uh, Africa, except for one, um, 
which uh, I believe was in Georgia. Um, but other than that, every single investigation they've ever done is in Africa, which in and of itself is interesting because if you were to think of violations of international law in, well, at least since the formation of the ICC in 2003, what would you think of? Uh, uh, for myself personally, I would think of uh, wars, illegal wars of aggression committed by the United States and his allies in Afghanistan, in Iraq, um, based on premeditated lies about weapons of mass destruction, for example, that we now know as being premeditated lies. Um, the indefinite detention of captives at Camp X-Ray and Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and other military prisons that resulted from those illegal wars and the the, the labeling of those captives as enemy combatants, um, highly legally questionable. Um, you could think of Israel's use of white phosphorus in 2009 in Gaza. Uh, you could think of Saudi Arabia and its ongoing um, genocide, because that's what it is in Yemen, um, that is actively being supported by the U.S. and its allies, uh, the UAE and others. Uh, there's a lot of examples that you could think of, but not a single one of them have, has ever been referred to uh, the ICC. Uh, ICC. Partly, that is a problem of jurisdiction, because, of course, the United States is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. It's not a member. So it declares that it is beyond the purview of that court, and it sticks to that. Um, for example, uh, recently, uh, back in 2017, the ICC opened a preliminary investigation into U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, and they found a reasonable basis to believe that war crimes and crimes against humanity were committed in Afghanistan by U.S. forces. And so the prosecutor followed up by announcing that she was formally requesting an investigation by the ICC into those charges. But guess what? Um, that's not going to happen, and it never was. But uh, just to make sure that everyone understands that the U.S. is not going to be investigated by the ICC for anything, uh, John Bolton, back when he was appointed National Security Advisor to the Trump administration, in his very first ever press conference, he made a point of that. He said the United States will use any means necessary to protect our citizens and those of our allies from unjust prosecution by this illegitimate court. Uh, he added that the Trump administration will fight back against the ICC, and he said, we will not cooperate with the ICC, we will provide no assistance to the ICC, we will not join the ICC, we will let the ICC die on its own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. <laughs> Which, uh, well, there's no, no diplomatic mincing of words there. I think we get the message. And in a sense, it's one that I, I actually am not at odds with, because the the question of international law and who holds the the jurisdiction to prosecute people across international lines and under what circumstances and who's on that tribunal and all of those things is a very, very sticky question and one with a uh, big pedigree that I've gone into in my podcast before on the question of international law and who's really been formulating that. But that aside, um, at any rate, for anyone on the International Criminal Court, like one of the judges on the ICC, that was a pretty obvious sign that the ICC is not going to be able to live up to its mandate to actually prosecute international war crimes. And as a result, or international crime, I should say, uh, not war crimes in particular. Um, and as a result, uh, recently, one of the uh, judges on the ICC, a judge named Christoph Flug, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, a German, uh, recently resigned from the ICC. He, he cited, well, that, that um, uh, refusal by the U.S. basically to even be investigated for war crimes in Afghanistan specifically 
Um, he said the American security advisor held his speech at a time when The Hague was planning preliminary investigation into American soldiers who had been accused of torturing people in Afghanistan. The American threats against international judges clearly show the new political climate. It is shocking. I had never heard such a threat. So he was citing um, threats that he had received for and, and others on the ICC had received for even thinking about looking into prosecuting uh, American crimes in Afghanistan. Uh well, as I point out in this article, although Christoph uh, Flug might not have heard of it before, others who have been involved uh, in the International Criminal Court and around those workings in the past uh, would have heard such threats before. And I have an example from my own interview archives. I interviewed a man named Christopher Black, who's an international criminal lawyer who successfully defended a former uh, Rwandan uh, gendarmerie um, back at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And... Uh, he he talked about U.S. interference in in that case back in the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Uh, in that interview with me and in other places, he's talked about it. Um, the interference that the U.S. brought to bear in the International Criminal Court, and this all goes around the fundamental premise of my article, which is the International Criminal Court is just a fig leaf for international justice. It's of course not justice in and of itself. It is just uh, 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 the token. Hey, look, we're we're providing justice and we're going to prosecute the international criminals. It just happens that all the international criminals are Africans. <laughs> you know, who, who would have thought? And, and that's, in some ways, that's even worse than not having the court at all because without the court at all, at least people would understand there is no international justice being had. But when the court is there, it, it at least gives the impression to uh, people who don't look deeply into these matters that there is some sort of Oh, there's an international criminal court. They look into these things. I guess I guess nothing bad happened in Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else because, hey, look, they didn't prosecute it. When, of course, there's a much deeper story. So I think that's, that's really the point of this. Um, justice in the international level is still just victor's justice. Do you think there's any reason the reason they target Africa might have to do with China? As China, you know, is trying to take a, um, you know, pretty strong mm. appearance yeah. in that area, and you know, yep. perhaps this is a way of keeping yep. some sense of. Yes, yes. I mean, there is absolutely some element of that in some of the specific cases. For example, when we look at the Sudan, and the the, the sort of cause celeb, quite literally, that occurred uh, about a decade, decade and a half ago around Sudan and, and the horrible things that were happening there and the genocide and all of that, which was um, being hyped by people like George Clooney and others. But that was clearly the U.S. and their allies taking a certain side in that conflict in order to... Uh, it was essentially an oil war, and China was taking one side, and the U.S. and their allies were taking another, so the U.S. played the genocide card. And so the ICC investigation into Sudan certainly had that 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 uh, that flavor to it, and that isn't to say that international crimes or, or crimes against humanity or what whatever you know rubric you want to use didn't occur there. Uh, they they almost certainly did, um, but it's a question of exactly when these things are prosecuted and you know when they are when when the court is willing to look the other way, and that is what Victor's Justice is about. Um, it's like. The, uh, the war crime tribunals held uh, in the Tokyo war crime tribunal, which uh, prosecuted, of course, the Japanese for their war crimes. But the people sitting on it were U.S. military uh, uh, members who themselves had committed war crimes in 
the firebombing of Tokyo or the, the bombing of Dresden and other war crimes that, that occurred in World War II. Again, which war crimes get prosecuted and which ones get overlooked or airbrushed in the history books is just a matter of who, who ends up winning the war. Was that the ICC supposed to be a, play a very big part in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement? Uh, I believe that was one of the things that the, the, the they were to decide any situations that arose from the TPP and so forth. I, uh, for some reason, uh, nothing could be uh, – courts and everything couldn't be in the states. It would have to all be through the yes, ICC, yes, yes, I believe. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, there was an international enforcement mechanism there. Um, I don't I, – I would have to look it up again. I don't believe it was the International Criminal Court, but there was an international – um, tribunal mechanism of some sort that uh, people could appeal to under one of the clauses in that TPP, the way that it was presented before it was uh, uh, morphed into whatever it's uh, becoming right now. But um, when that initial leak happened and we saw the clauses, one of them had to do with an international tribunal or international court of some sort. It was I don't believe it was the ICC was itself, that? though. Okay. Before we talk about Pakistan and India, I when I ask you about um, uh, last week's Vietnam summit with uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, and uh, there was reports today of movement in North Korea's intercontinental ballistic facilities that uh, could mean, would mean, that uh, they could be setting up for some missile testing. Um What's your take on that, if any? Uh, how's going to South Korea, Japan, and how – before we go into Pakistan and India, how does all that fit into an equation? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, it's uh, difficult to know at this point. I haven't seen those reports specifically they're referring to, so I'm not going to uh, comment on them until we know um, something more substantial because there's always reports of – suspected activity here and there and we'll see what actually eventuates from it um but it, it, uh, could north korea resume missile testing as a result of collapse of talks in hanoi uh, it's potentially possible um uh, i think ultimately it's not particularly surprising to me that north korean u.s talks seem to have stalled um at this point because it was never seriously on the table that there was any sort of agreement here. It was always just going to be, you're going to disarm, and then we'll talk about getting rid of sanctions. And it, realistically, from an objective third point part, point of view, it would be absolute ridiculous nonsense for the North Koreans to accept such a uh, agreement from uh, a, a state that has just recently pulled out of one of its other agreements with another um, so arming nuclear power as slash um, nuclear energy um, proponent, Iran, uh, over non what the, the U.S. even admitted was not a breach of the agreement, but they just pulled out of it unilaterally. Why would anyone negotiate with with that state in good faith? I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense. So I don't think there was any ever serious uh, offer on the table to, to work with here at all. But to me, the most important point of this process is the the at least the easing of tensions between North and South Korea and the ability to create a space for North and South to come together at the table and start hammering out some some agreements on their own. And if this does nothing else than give um, Kim and Moon uh, at least the space to to meet more frequently and uh, and exchange information and at least begin that process, then then it will have been worth something. Well, I want you to talk about Pakistan and India before we run out of time. I hope we have yes. a little more. Uh, you have a, a – tell the listeners about how they can 
um, read at your website. Tell us about Okay. Well, uh, I am going to be writing about this in the International Forecaster this weekend. So, of course, you can pick up the International Forecaster. As you say, you can get a free introductory copy at theinternationalforecaster.com, and they always post my lead editorial there um, every weekend. Uh, You can also read my newsletter on my website, corbettreport.com. To read my newsletter, you need to be a subscriber to my website. Um, But uh, as I say, the the International Forecaster is freely available. That editorial is freely available. and I'm going to be writing about what's been happening in India and Pakistan, specifically in Kashmir, uh, over the past few weeks. And people might have heard that there was an attack on Indian forces in February 14th, a suicide bombing of a bus that was carrying some Indian paramilitary police reserve officers, killing 40 people. At least that's the story as we understand it. And then India, of course, had to respond militarily, um, especially because there is a, a an election coming up soon in which... The Modi government is fighting for its uh, political life. So, uh, as always, a little bit of military action is always good to to rally people around the flag and make them feel good about the government. So, uh, some sort of military response is going to come. And so, of course, we saw uh, India responding with a airstrike uh, over Pakistan, actually breaching Pakistani airspace, uh, which led to a uh, shootdown of a, a MiG-21 by Pakistani fighters and just a lot of craziness. Uh, one of the aspects of that craziness is the fact that uh, India has claimed that they struck this compound, um, this madrasa that was being that was training these suicide bombers uh, in Pakistan. They claim they, they destroyed the site and killed hundreds of ter- would-be terrorists. Uh, Pakistan laughed at that and said that's all that's fake news. Um, well, now Reuters is coming out with satellite photos that seem to show the site and not a single crater, no damage, nothing whatsoever to show that there was any strike whatsoever of any sort. So it looks like India was lying about the fact that their airstrikes were successful. So this is going to add another layer to this story. And this, of course, all comes in the background of the China-Pakistan economic corridor and uh, America calling it the Indo-Pacific instead of the Asia-Pacific and India and Pakistan and their relationship to China and the U.S. It's a big mess. So I'm going to be sorting that out in the newsletter this week. That sounds like a very interesting read, ladies and gentlemen. So make sure you get a free complimentary copy of the internationalforecaster.com or go to thecorbettreport.com. And thank you so much, James, for joining us. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. And thank you all for tuning in today. So until then, be safe, good night, and God bless. Be a wealthy man.